Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Julian Guthrie will join us to discuss how to make a spaceship. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, private spaceflight was all but unimaginable just a few decades ago, but today we have witnessed the phenomenal success of numerous private ventures. All of this breaking enterprise has its origins, the work of one man and his visionary X-Prize. Well, in the new book, How to Make a Spaceship, A Band of Renegades, An Epic Race, and the Birth of Public Spaceflight, journalist Julian Guthrie explores this uh, fascinating topic. Veteran journalist and best-selling author, Ms. Guthrie, had the visionary, Paul DeMandis' full enthusiastic attention in completing this work. She's a veteran journalist who's won numerous awards, including the Best of the West Award, Society of Professional Journalists, and has authored several books, including the best-selling The Billionaire and the Mechanic, which was selected by Forbes magazine as the top 10 nonfiction book of 2014. Again, the new book is called How to Make a Spaceship, and Ms. Guthrie, we're going to have you join us today on the Grok Science Show. Happy to be with you. Thank you for your interest. It's quite a tale I was able to tell. Well, it's certainly a fascinating tale, and one of just mostly recent memory, in fact, but uh, one that has uh, quite a bit of history to it, stretching back from what inspired Paul Diamandis in his establishing of the X-Prize. I'm just curious how you became interested in this topic. So I was working at the San Francisco Chronicle uh, as a daily journalist, and I interviewed Peter Diamandis about three years ago, I guess. I did a, a front page profile on him. I was doing profiles on interesting people in our midst, and he has a university in the Silicon Valley area for entrepreneurs. It's called Singularity U. And so I met with him to talk with him about that, and in doing so, we started talking about the first X Prize, and I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't really know the <clears throat> the details of it. So he started to tell me the backstory to the X Prize, and I just became completely fascinated by this this really significant um, historical event or these events and what led to it and what came after. And I was really drawn into the human drama and the technological innovation. But mostly I was drawn into, at first at least, Peter's story of this little boy who grew up dreaming of getting to space and the lengths to which he went to make that a reality. So that's when I met Peter and that's when I first started thinking about this story as my next book. And then I started learning about more of the, the characters. Of course, this is a true story, but these true, these people are characters in every sense of the word. And, and I really found it to be a, a gripping story and then just, um, you know, really embodying the best of the human spirit and a failure but resiliency and finding a breakthrough um, when other people say that uh, it wasn't going to happen. I love these underdog stories. It certainly has a number of them. I'm curious, the central figure here, Peter Diamandis, what was your impression of him? What was his story, and how did he become so driven to make space flight reality? 
So it was funny when I first met Peter for the profile I did for the newspaper, um, he was talking about his company that he co-founded It's called Planetary Resources, and it's up in Seattle, and it's to mine asteroids. And he was talking about, oh, we're going to create the world's first trillionaires, and we're going to mine the asteroids, and it has, you know, all of these precious metals that are rare here on Earth. And I was looking at him probably wide-eyed, and he got up just to the whiteboard and started laying it out in this very pragmatic, step-by-step way. It was my very first introduction to the dreamer, Peter Diamandis. And then um, I really, though, learned, I really felt like I understood Peter Diamandis when he very generously and trustingly unearthed about 25 years' worth of his personal journals that had been in storage and no one had ever seen, and he had started them when he was a teenager and sent them all to me. You know, he didn't even open the boxes, just sent everything to me. And I spent a month solid rereading those journals. And I really got to, I felt like, watch this boy grow into a man and this boy who sat wide-eyed in July 1969 and watched Apollo 11 land and was transfixed and sets out on this journey to try to get to space. And is one of these kids who was making rockets and hoarding explosives, you know, in his upstairs bedroom and had this little group of buddies and they'd ride their bikes back and forth to each other's homes and carrying these, you know, these chemicals, which today would probably get you arrested for, but, um, you know, making things, building things, uh, you know, flying rockets. And then you see him go to MIT and you see him go to Harvard. He goes to Harvard Medical School with no intention of ever practicing medicine, but instead to two things. One, to please his parents. He was a good Greek boy who his father was a, a doctor and they wanted him to be a doctor, but he loved space. But really, so it could improve, and this is kind of nutty, so it could improve his, cha- his chances of uh, living longer. So he thought somehow being at Harvard Medical school would help him live longer, learn to live longer so he could one day get to space. So he does all of these things um, to try to get into the astronaut corps, what he thinks. He will go, you know, to NASA in the astronaut corps. And so it so it takes us there. And then it, you know, and then there's the, the next step where he realizes that he wasn't going to get to space through the government. So then starts another part of this, of this epic adventure. And, and that must have been something tricky to deal with. Here, here he'd been spending most of his life uh, trying to get to space, and then uh, now the government pulls back. Uh, uh, he decides to take it into his own hands. He does, exactly. And, you know, he takes, I love this part of it, that he takes his inspiration for something thoroughly modern from this great chapter in American history when Charles Lindbergh, the young airmail pilot, flew in 1927 from New York to Paris, And when he landed, he arguably became the most famous man on earth, but more importantly, he jump-started the commercial airline industry. And he did that to win a $25,000 prize called the Orteg Prize. And Peter is reading Lindbergh's book, The Spirit of St. Louis, and he has his aha moment, like, wow, okay, I'm not going to get there through NASA. NASA is running the space shuttle, but it's over budget and to many space dreamers it was under delivering what if i could launch my own incentive prize basically dangling a lot of money a great trophy a great prize 10 million dollars for the first team that could build and fly a manned rocket to the start of space twice within two weeks so he announces this prize in may 1996 in st louis where Lindbergh found his backers He's surrounded by the superheroes of his youth, the astronauts, including Buzz Aldrin, 
And he's also got a guy named, you know, Bert Rattan on stage with him, who will play a significant role in the story. And Eric Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's grandson, who will also come to the rescue of the X Prize in very dark days. So then you start, you know, you launch the prize and announce the prize and, and people across the globe. I think there were, you know, a couple dozen teams from a dozen countries who went after the $10 million prize. So, you know, you see Peter struggling to make that happen. And funny little detail, I don't know if you caught it in the book, but he announces a $10 million prize to great fanfare, but he does not, minor detail, have the $10 million. And rather bold move, but he felt it would be easy to get the money and difficult to get the teams, and it proved to be just just the opposite. So then he has to go and, you know, spend the next six plus years trying to come up with the money as the teams were trying to build their private spaceships. So you see these kind of parallel tracks um, where the teams are building to make this happen. And Peter is scrambling, being told no and no and no, even his best friends were telling him, you know, dude, you got to give up here. This is never going to happen. But he persevered and, you know, magic happens. <laughs> Things eventually fall into place, but uh, not without some dogged efforts. Uh, um, you listed the Mavericks that are involved in there, uh, Bert Rutan, Eric Lindbergh. Tell us a little bit about those folks and also the, the people that competed for the prize. So there were a number of people across the, the globe who heard about the X Prize and wanted to, you know, had a shared dream. You know, many who actually had grown up watching the referring you know referencing magic again the magic of course it wasn't magic it was you know it was human genius and and perseverance that made the apollo program happen but they grew up watching that and wanted you know to believe that space would be accessible to the private citizen not just the few astronauts who got to fly and um, so you see these teams that are, you know, the going after the prize, and you see Peter trying to raise the money, and you have this fellow Bert Rattan who had made his claim to fame, <coughs> excuse me, in the Mojave Desert with the Voyager, which was the first plane to fly nonstop, non-refueled around the world. So he was on the cover of Time magazine, or his plane was. It was this improbable-looking flying machine, but he did it. And he's working in the Mojave Desert, which is about two hours east of um, Los Angeles. It's kind of the Badlands area. There's nothing there, but it's where aviation history has happened, where the pilots literally straight out of the right stuff, uh, Chuck Yeager and others, you know, flew these experimental ground earth shattering sort of um, flying machines. <clears throat> so you have Bert and his team of fewer than 30 people in the Mojave trying to build the world's first private spaceship. And you have a guy who comes along who's their secret benefactor. This wasn't known for many years, and that was Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. He also had this shared dream of a private private enterprise, you know, obviously believes in the entrepreneurial model as much as anyone on Earth and wants to see that applied to to getting to space. And so he backs, quietly backs, Bert Rattan's effort in the Mojave Desert. And you had a young guy in whose story I love who's in Romania, who was in Romania, Bucharest, outside of that, and he's an engineering student. He drops out of uh, school, much to his parents' dismay, and he starts uh, this this um, team called ARCA uh, Space in 
um, the outskirts of Bucharest, basically in his father father-in-law's backyard, and is risking life and limb doing these experimental rockets. You have a guy named John Carmack down in Texas who had made his claim to fame making video games, Quake and Doom, and really a genius coder programmer who hears about this and thinks, what if I apply my programming skills to rocketry? Can't be that hard. And he forms a team in Texas called Armadillo Aerospace. And today, John Carmack is the chief technology officer of uh, Oculus Rift. Anyway, so he goes after similar stories like this. Bert Rattan was always the front runner. Um... Because of his skill, you know, his known um, genius with airplanes. And, but you had all of these in this, you know, really this race uh, to become the first and possibly to jumpstart an industry. So you have this playing out across the globe and with Bert, the front runner in Mojave, with his pilots, who I just love their stories, these great experimental test pilots you know, who are going to get into this little flying machine and and uh, white-knuckle it literally, you know, to the start of space through the dangerous transonic region and, um, you know, and with uh, audiences of tens of thousands of people watching live on the desert of the Mojave, of Mojave. So lots of drama there. How is it that Bert Rutan and, and his uh, team with Spaceship One, they succeeded where uh, the other teams uh, failed? What was it about him or his technology or his vision that he was able to come through and win the prize? That's a great question. I mean, there's a great, um, this is like a you know a entrepreneurial roadmap for how to do something right. So in the Mojave, where Bert had scaled composites, a company he had founded, um, and his team, you know, they're very off the grid, and they're able to do things where they can take a lot of risks with very little governmental oversight. And so they had these improbable flying machines, these experimental planes that they were flying, building and flying um, on a regular basis with very, again, the lack of governmental oversight was a key there. Their willingness to take risk, their test pilots who were willing to take huge risks to uh, to fly. And really the technology, the big breakthrough in terms of the science here was something that is, it could be a book unto itself. So Bert Rattan, like others who uh, have, you know, dreamed of, you know, space flight or know a little bit about space flight, the most dangerous part is when the um, spacecraft is coming back through the Earth's atmosphere and the potential for it to break apart. And Bert had this ingenious idea, which he was a he was a modeler as a youth, so he would make you know model airplanes and all sorts of things. And he had something called a um, model plane that has a dethermalizer. Anyway, it, um, on a model plane that he had built as a youth, and that maybe subconsciously he harked back to when he was designing what became known as the feather. It was this mechanism where basically the back half of the plane of the spaceship would fold up when you were coming back into the atmosphere. And it was almost like a shuttlecock, a badminton birdie, where it would align itself in just the right way without the pilot doing anything, um, the pilot was actually flying this, but without the pilot doing anything, it would reorient itself 
at the right angle to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And it was called the feather, and anyone interested should look it up. It was very ingenious. Other people told, even aerodynamicists told Bert Rattan it wouldn't work, and he would probably kill his test pilot. It would result in a fatal spin. But Bert, you know, had he started out um, throwing these model planes off the tower in Mojave to study this feather mechanism, and then slowly they built it up and up and up, and and he trusted it, and they did all the testing, and uh, that was that was the genius, that was the breakthrough that he believed. Here's this airplane designer in the Mojave Desert, you know, who believed that this was going to work and this was going to save his pilots and this was going to save the ship and this was going to get, uh, win the X Prize. And, you know, it was this ingenious thing. Again, it just bent the back half up when you're re- or re-entering the atmosphere and it slowed it down. It just created this natu- created this natural drag and the right orientation to come back into the atmosphere, and it worked beautifully. And it was that was the breakthrough, and, and that was the technology, the design, really, that Richard Branson ended up buying that you will soon see flying, um, taking, uh, the goal is for him to take pain passengers to space. But that, that same mechanism, that same feather mechanism, is what he's using. So the science behind it, you know, it was this great breakthrough from, from an aviation, an airplane designer, you know, who just loved airplanes and, and grew up loving them and dreamed of nothing other than making airplanes who made the world's first private spaceship a reality. And today, uh, Spaceship One hangs in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum alongside uh, Apollo 11 and Charles Lindbergh's plane, Spirit of St. Louis. So quite the achievement. Uh, we're running a little out of time. I'm curious, so what, what was the aftermath of him having won the X Prize, and where are we now in terms of actually making a private space flight a reality? So I think that um, the story that I got to tell on how to make a spaceship, it really it does tell this great backstory to um, the commercial space industry of today, Um, all that's happening, you know, where he was able to interview Elon Musk, and he's in the book, and Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who has his own space company, and, of course, Richard Branson, and all these mavericks uh, of uh, the commercial, who have created commercial space industries, or commercial space companies that are doing this public-private partnership, actually, where they're at least with Elon's case, where he's working with uh, with NASA, but it's the most exciting time. And for Peter, it was you know it was a dream of a lifetime achieved. However, it was also the starting point for you know an industry that could be that we're seeing happen right now. So it was one. Actually, 13 years ago this month in the Mojave Desert, you know that was when Spaceship One flew. Uh, two times safely and won that $10 million prize. And Peter Diamandis, you know, started the X Prize became a global competition and it's now used to solve other big challenges um, around the world. And today you have, you know, again, these entrepreneurs who are determined to get to get us to Mars or to get us back to the moon or to get uh, the planet, the biosphere backed up. Um, so you have this, you know, this dreamer quality of exploration, and you also have this pragmatic side, this practical side of we need to back up the biospheres. So all of those things are coming to fruition now. Well, it's a great model, and I think uh, one hopefully can solve a, a number of the world's problems. I hope so, and we're it's really exciting, and it's all about big dreams. And we're running a campaign on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and 
search how to make a spaceship book and if you upload your moonshot you could win a signed copy of the book signed by none other than other than Richard Branson and also Peter Diamandis to share your moonshot your big dream with us and just you know it really is about these big dreams and finding a way to make them a reality so i'm really proud of this story and and uh, love talking about it I certainly hope people will go take a look at the book again, the book, How to Make a Spaceship, A Band of Renegades, An Epic Race, and the Birth of Private Spaceflight, and the author, Miss Julian Guthrie. And Ms. Guthrie, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Sign Show. Thank you for having me. You have a great show. Much appreciated. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Sign Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.